to worship you, to see our gather as your people, to look to you, to worship you, to see our, our need, and to confess our need and our dependence. And when we confess that, Lord, you draw our eyes to you and you reveal yourself to us and you show us that you are the one who provides all that it is that we, we do need. You are sufficient to provide for our salvation. You are sufficient to provide for every need that we could ever have. And we're thankful, God, that you have drawn us into communion, into fellowship with you. We've read this morning and we've sung, Father, the importance, the centrality of faith, not just a faith that justifies, but a faith that also sanctifies, a faith that is lived out. And I pray, God, that that would be true for us this year. Pray that that would be true for us, maybe just starting even today, that we would begin to take steps of obedience. Every step of obedience is a display of faith in you, that we believe that we, in, what, in doing what you call us to do and want us to do and ask us to do, we are pleasing you in that way. And oftentimes these steps are uh, steps of faith. God, we just, um, a display of trust in you and your word over over our own thinking, over our own desiring and feeling. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to be a people that live by faith. We walk by faith, um, not by sight. So may you be magnified this morning, Lord, through the preaching of your word, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, let me add to the uh, Happy New Year to everybody. It's really um, providential, of course, where we are in Romans this morning. I still, even like after all this time, I still want to say where we are in Luke, because we were in Luke for three years, and so it's being a creature of habit that I am, but um, where we are in Romans this morning, as, we getting, as we're going to get into Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Um, it's really providential where we are in talking about faith and this being the new, you know, the first day of the new year and really the centrality of faith in the life of the believer, not only the faith that justifies and sets us apart, but faith that is applied and lived out, a faith that really sanctifies us as well. And um, I think it's good for us to consider that. Um, I think of the way that Paul, what we've seen from him already in the book of Romans, um, and if you're familiar with Paul, I think you would agree that these elements are true in his other writings as well that the Lord had, had in, inspired him to write. Um, Paul had a passion to preach the gospel that drove the agenda for his life. Like God's calling in his life actually drove the agenda for his life. God being involved in his life wasn't just like something that was on the side or something that he thought about or considered periodically. The God of the universe that called him to his work in the ministry was the God that set the agenda for his life. You could say that Paul's worldview actually shaped and informed the way that he lived. And that should be true for us as well. I mean, it's really, if you think about it, it's true for you whether you like it or not. Your worldview is, is shaping and driving the agenda for why you do what you do and the way that you live. The Christian's goal is to have our worldview be 
God's worldview, to be the worldview that the Bible gives to us so that that worldview would shape the way that we live and drive the agenda for our lives as well. And so I think it's good for us, especially the beginning of the year, to think about, is my life and are God's priorities and his agenda really what informs the way that I live? Is that really what drives my life? Or do I have my own plans and I just ask God to bless what I want to do? Or do I have my own plans and just, you know, I'm, God's kind of here riding in the sidecar with me along in my life? Or does God's agenda and his priority really drive what I do, the way that I live? And if it does, then you are going to be live, living a life that is walking by faith. I think of um, a couple years ago, there was a, a mini-series put out that was on the World War II. And there was always, and this is an episode that stood out to me, and it was in regarding the Battle of Bastogne, which was part of the Battle of the Bulge. And it was when the American troops hit this town of Bastogne, which was in Belgium, and it was like late December, and they get there, and it's covered with snow, it's freezing temperatures, and they're, so they're fighting this war just in their normal army gear, snow on the ground, in their foxholes, and in their trenches, and stuff like that, and they're highly discouraged from building, lighting fires to keep them warm, even within their own little foxholes and stuff like that, because it would the light from the fire would give away their position. It would make them vulnerable to, it would tell the enemy where they were and make them vulnerable to attacks. And so they couldn't even, they were not only discouraged from building fires, but they couldn't even light cigarettes because even just the light from the cigarette, they were afraid, they were afraid would um, give their position away and make them susceptible to enemy fire. And I think about that and I go, I think that that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. They don't fan into flame the faith that they have they don't let their light sh um, shine brightly because they're afraid of giving away their position in the world and they're afraid of drawing enemy fire, if you will. And that's just not what we see in Scripture. That's just not what we see in Romans. That's not what we see in the Bible as a whole. We see people that are living a life by faith and if their faith is fanned into flame, which our sermon title is today, The Flame of Faith, then it's something that burns and it burns brightly and it gives away your position. In the eyes of the world, you, they, people should know very clearly in the world who you are, what you stand for, why you exist. Does God's agenda and his priority drive your life? Because if it does, you're going to be putting off light. And your faith is going to be evident. And that's what we see in our text today. Paul is commending this church in Rome for the display of their faith. And then we see his faith put on display. And then we see this wonderful convergence, this mutual faith being shared between the church in Rome and Paul, and then how that faith is worked out and applied. And so it's good for us, I think, this day, this New Year's Day, to consider, do I live a life of faith? Do I let my light shine? Is it burning brightly for all to see? So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 together. And then we want to consider a few of the things that we see. 
Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 8, verse 8, Paul would continue on what he has been saying. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You look at verse 8, the first thing that Paul does is he commends the church in Rome for their faith. First, he wants, them to let, he wants to let them know where it is that he is beginning. What is the thing that Paul, or rather God, because he is the ultimate author of Scripture, mentions first when he launches into this massive letter that's just full of doctrine, deep, sometimes complicated doctrine and theology? Where does he start first? with thankfulness. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul begins his letter to the Romans, the official body, as we've already worked through the greeting of the letter, the official body of the letter with thankfulness. And this thankfulness is to God, which tells us that the faith that he is thankful for, which we will get to because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, is actually he's thanking God because their faith is a product of God's working in them. And so faith, which we've talked about often, is a gift that God provides. And he's thanking God that he has provided this church in Rome with faith. And thankfulness is something that we see often in Paul's letters. And we see it oftentimes repeated throughout Scripture in general. Paul would write a similar thing to the church in Thessalonica. That he is thankful for them and for their faith. He would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord, word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This church in Thessalonica, which again, much like the church in Rome, which was under incredible pressure and persecution. It, I don't find it coincidental at all that this church in Thessalonica, which is under incredible persecution, and the church in Rome, which is under incredible persecution, are two of the churches specifically that Paul mentions in Scripture of saying, I am thankful for your faith because it is burning brightly and everybody is talking about how how. Your faith is being displayed in the midst of darkness, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of persecution and trials. You are in the season of loss, and yet your faith is what is being commended about you. 
man, I look at that and I'm like, I want that to be true for me. I want that to be true for this church. I want that to be true for my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are facing tremendous persecution and hardship and difficulty simply by being identified with the person of Jesus Christ. And their faith would be strong and burning brightly because faith is not something that is, you don't walk it out by sight. Faith is something that is, is, is fixed solely upon God, his truth, his word, his character. It's, it's something that can be lived out in every season of life because circumstances and situations don't determine our faith and how it will be lived out. Paul would again say later on in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. He's thanking this church for their faith. And thanks is something that should be given in all circumstances. Psalm 92.1 says it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Paul is giving thanks for their faith. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And I was, as I was thinking about thankfulness this week in preparation for this sermon, I came to the conclusion that I don't think that thankfulness, true thankfulness, has a but to it. You ever talk, you ever hear, talk to people, oh, I, I, I am, I am really thankful, I'm so thankful. But is that real thankfulness? Because I think thankfulness and contentment, like, they should be married to one another, right? Like, real thankfulness is not, oh, yeah, I'm super thankful. But thankfulness and contentment go hand in hand. True thankfulness is content with where you are, with what you have, with what is going on. True thankfulness is married to contentment because you're looking to God and you're saying, this is what you have allotted for me at this time. And you're, and you're exceedingly good and wise. And so I can be thankful in all circumstances. It's, we sing this song, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And part of it says this, as I think it, it communicates well the idea of thankfulness and contentment. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. That is thankfulness. That is contentment that is looking to the Lord and communicating and displaying a trust in his sovereignty and what he has sent, saying, your hand can turn my griefs away. Whatever season I'm in, your hand can turn my griefs away, but patiently I will wait. Patiently I will wait this day. And so Paul is full of thankfulness full of thankfulness for the church and it's through Jesus Christ because only through the person of Jesus Christ can we be thankful 
genuinely, only through Jesus Christ, he is the grounds of our thankfulness. He is the grounds of our, of our faith. And so he goes on to say, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And why does he give thanks? Because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Because their faith is going out, their faith is burning brightly. Other Christians are talking about the faithfulness of the, of the believers in Rome. I, I don't take faith here just to mean the faith that we have as a gift from God that justifies us. I take it to mean as a gift or faith, um, which is also what we apply and what we live out in our lives. It's what the, it's what the, the Puritans and the writers of old used to call piety. It was, it was a faith that was applied, that was evidenced by a heartfelt devotion and worship to God that seeped into every area of their life and was displayed in all that it is that they did. Their love for God, their gratitude to Him, their devotion to Him, their heart of worship to Him was overflowing into every area of their life, into their parenting, into their working, into their leisure, into every area. God was informing, their, His Word was informing them on how not only they should live, but how they should respond, how they should feel about what it is that God had done for them and what He had given to them and what He had ordained in their lives and always mindful of walking around of the presence of God and his glory and his greatness being involved in their lives and they applied it. It was a faith that was applied. I believe that's the type of faith that he is talking about when he commends these Christians in Rome. I am commending you for your faith because it is evidence. The flame of your faith is burning brightly and Christians in other cities are talking about it. A faith that's being worked out. What does a faith look like that's worth talking about? Does this church exhibit a faith that's worth talking about? Do we as individuals live a life of faith that's worth talking about. Not that we're, we're, we're puffing one another up, but that we're talking about genuine obedience and faith being applied in our lives that brings glory to God, like the Christians in Rome. faith that is worth talking about is a faith that is uncompromising. It's a faith that is active. It's a faith that's proven by works. It's a faith that's vocal. It's not a faith that shrinks back because a faith that is shrinking back isn't worth imitating or talking about. It's the student that goes off to college who won't fold under the pressure that they experience from the world and from their professors that's held on to, that's maintained, and that's still espoused, committed. It's the employee that won't support woke ideology that's flooding our society. 
it's the mom and the dad that are committed to making church life a priority for their family and their little ones. I mean, we talk about, we love talking about these really wild and radical displays of faith, right? The missionaries who go into the field and lay their lives down. And we think, man, that's what real faith looks like. And unless I'm doing that, then I have some anemic, paltry faith. That doesn't, robust, genuine, um, fiery faith doesn't have to look like that. It can be where you are and living obediently and committed and devoted to, the, to God and to what he calls you to do. Letting the flame of your faith burn wherever it is that you are and making that stand and commitment. So he commends the church in Rome for their faith. And then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about his own faith as well. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For God is my witness. These might be the, the boldest words written in Scripture. I mean, if you're going to call God, you picture that you're in a courtroom and you're about to make your statement and your defense, and who is your witness? God. You've got to be pretty sure that what you're saying is really the truth if you're bringing God into the room. And Paul, just, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, with I, whom I serve with my whole heart, by the Holy Spirit, but also but by all that I have within me. My life is fully devoted. I'm serving God with all my heart. Again, Paul was one who, it's like God's agenda for his life informed the way that he actually lived and the decisions that he made on a day-to-day basis. With all my heart, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. And you, you notice a key word in there? whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. He's always mentioning them. He's always praying for them, always in my prayers, asking. I think this is an important display of Paul's faith. That he put, he, he's reminding them and he's telling us that he is always in a position of asking God that I might do this if it be your will. What he's communicating, what we see exemplified in Paul's faith is that he was firmly grounded in the sovereignty of God and rested in the fact that God was at work and that he was simply God's instrument and that if it was God's will, he would do what he wanted to do for God's glory. Asking God, not demanding, which we often do and are guilty of but simply asking God that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul positions himself, even doing good things ministerially, right? In his mind, 
it's good. If I get to go to Rome, that's a good thing because they'll support me, which we'll get into in verses 11 through 13. He's, he's highlighting their faith. He's highlighting his faith, and he's setting up verses 11 and 13, which he brings these two faiths together. But in his mind, it's a good thing for me to go to Rome. I'm going to be able to encourage them. They'll be able to supply for me, and the gospel will, be, will continue to be able to go out. And, but, and, and I would say that's, like, that's a good plan. Those are good things. I mean, me and Sam are leaving for Ethiopia on Friday, and I'm like, this is a good thing that we should do this. But every single moment of every day, I'm keeping in mind the fact that that may not be what God has planned. My prayer is like, okay, guys, over there, if, if it's God's will, we will succeed in coming to you and teaching the curriculum, and by God's will, we'll succeed in coming back here. I think that's a really good idea. I would love to come back home. And I would love for us to continue to do what it is that God has called us to do. But every single thing that we plan to do, even the good things in ministry, always have to be held out with, not my will, but your will be done. I think it's a good idea. God's like, it is a good idea. It's just not what I have planned. What I, but, what I, but what God has planned is always better. And it may not always seem that way, but... When you look to him and you consider who he is, how can we not say that your plans are, are better than ours and yield ourselves and submit ourselves? Paul's faith was one that was in constant yielding and submission to what he wanted. He planned. Paul, his faith was evidenced by working hard. He asked. He tried to go. But it wasn't what God had planned, which we'll see again later on in the text. Faith of believer is one who asks, that works hard, but is always yielding and submitting to what God has planned, not what we have planned. And then we see in verses 11 through 13, their mutual faith. He tells us why he wants to go there, for I long to see you. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented by who? God. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You look at ver the, just the structure, verses 11, 12, and 13, and this is really the, the core of this passage. Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you. I want to give to you. Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged that we would give to one another. Verse 13, for I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest from you that you may give to me. I want to give to you. We should give to each other. Then you give to me. The whole thing that he's talking about here is the mutuality of their faith that's being shared with one another in order that they may be encouraged by each other's display of faith. Verse 11, I, I always, sometimes I joke around and I say, you know, like 70% of our church are recovering charismatics. And I think like verse 11 is one of these verses where people get way off the rails, right? Like Paul, he want, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Ooh, what's he talking about? 
What, what gift does he want to give him? Does he want to give him the gift of like tongues, prophecy, or healing, or miracle working? Well, I think it's important to remember in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that Paul would write to the church in Corinth that was getting this type of thing all wrong, that the Spirit of God is the one that imparts these spiritual gifts. So if Paul is very clear there that the Spirit of God gives them, and here he's talking about him imparting a spiritual gift, he's not talking about the same things. But then we also have the benefit of verse 12. I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. We know that he wants to strengthen them. But then he says in verse 12, that is, or let me clarify, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. It's the display of your faith, and it's the working of my faith. That when we get together, when the flame of your faith and the flame of my faith come together, these two flames make one larger, bigger flame that burns even brighter for the kingdom of God and the sake of the gospel and the effectiveness going out so that people, those who don't know Christ, may come to know Christ, and those who do know Christ are strengthened and encouraged. I don't know about you, but it is a wonderful thing. I love to hear stories about what God is doing in people's lives as they walk obediently to him by faith. It's encouraging to me. And it, and it, and it doesn't have to be these, like, these wild, grand, extravagant stories. It can be like everyday, what we consider everyday mundane, like the boring things. But it was like, hey, man, this is what I felt like doing. But I felt like yelling at my spouse. But... I remember that Jesus doesn't want me to do that. So I chose to bite my tongue, be obedient to God in that way. I'm like, that's a display of faith. Those things are encouraging. We should be sharing with one another these stories, the things that God is doing in their lives so that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, like Paul was. That we may be mutually encouraged both your faith and mine. Paul had a huge heart for encouragement with the churches. You see in, at the end of his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, when he's returning, at the end of his missionary journey, he's returning back to visit the churches that he had been to already. And it says in Acts chapter 14, 22, that his goal is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we, may, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul had a huge pastoral heart for encouraging his people. Encouraging them to walk by faith, not encouraging them that, oh, things will get better, life will get easier. You know what? Sometimes it doesn't get easier. Sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes God says, "This this is what I have allotted to you. And you were to learn to look to me and find me as your source of hope and joy and good in this season of life. 
Has he not given us very many great and precious promises in his word? Has he not told us that he loves us? Has he not told us that he, that he has all things in control? Are not all things working according to how he wants them to work out? Everything moving towards, as we've said often, their divinely appointed ends. We just learn to look to him and to trust in him. As we mutually encourage one another. He says again in verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, I mean, this is such like affectionate and encouraging language. I, I, want, I want you to know, brothers, people he's never met. Calling people he has never met his brothers and genuinely meaning it. This, this term of affection, of being a family. You are my, I've never met you, but you're my brothers. I care for you. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. I wanted to come. I tried to come. But thus far, I've been prevented. God said no. He wants to go to them in order that he may reap some harvest among them, probably referring to the support, the financial support that he expects to get from them so that he can continue the gospel ministry into Spain in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. But again, Paul communicates his heart of submitting to God. I want you to know that I wanted to come, but God has prevented me from doing so. He actually, in Acts chapter 16, we see this is again as well. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They have their plans. We're going to go this way. We're going to preach the gospel. And God says, no, you're not going that way. You're going this way instead. I mean, the heart of the Christian is always submitting and yielding to God for, to go where he leads, where he directs. That's walking by faith. That's real faith applied in your life. It should be our heart that God allows and he prevents what he wants done. And we are always yielding to this. We need to remember that the plan of redemption is God's plan of redemption as he unfolds it. Now this certainly doesn't encourage laziness. Well, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing until God, you know, spiritually or mystically moves me somewhere to do something. I think what we've seen by Paul is that his faith was, he was asking, he was planning, he was active, he was preparing, he was passionate. I mean, he had the, the, the logistics in order, he had prepared his heart, he's ready to go but always being willing to submit to God whether these plans would go this way or go that way. And in verses 14 and 15, we see 
this exact same thing, a working faith. We've, he's highlighted their faith in verse 8. He's highlighted his own faith in verses 9 and 10. He's highlighted the mutual relationship of their shared faith in verses 11 and 13. And in verses 14 and 15, he again puts on display his working faith. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's obligation actually came, if you were to read his conversion in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God would say about him, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So he's under obligation. And his conversion, his calling to the apostolic ministry, he knew that he was an instrument in God's hands to bring the gospel before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And it really harkens back to what he said in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. He knew he was under obligation. He was called to it. But that didn't mean that he had a bad attitude in doing it. You notice, I am under obligation. I think, most of, I think if we're being honest, if you and I would say, man, I've been obligated to do this thing, we're probably saying it in a negative context, like I'm obligated to do something I don't want to do. That's usually when we use the word obligation. But that's not the way that it was for Paul. I am, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. His obligation led to an eagerness. Like he knew what his, this goes back to what we started with in the sermon. He knew what the purpose of his existence was all about. And God's agenda and plan for his life drove his life. The obligation that God had placed on him for his apostolic ministry led to an eagerness for him to fulfill what God had called him to do. There's this wonderful combination between called by God to do something, but then being gifted by God to do that thing, and the joy and the excitement that comes about by doing it and watching that God work in it to bring about fruit for his glory. Like, you and I, using the gifts that God has given to us, should be an exciting and joyful thing to do. Like, he's given each and every Christian gifts to use for his glory. And in one sense, yeah, you're, you're under obligation. Use the gift he's given you. But when you use it, there's this incredible joy. I think a lot of times Christians are like they're unhappy and they're discouraged and they're sad and they go about life, you know, like with the, the rain cloud just follows them wherever they go because they're not using the gift that God has given to them. Like they've taken it and they've buried it. And their faith is just like this 
this paltry little smoldering thing, and they're just trying to make it until Jesus comes back, and I don't want to draw too much attention to myself. I'm just trying to, to get through. Like, that's no way for a Christian to live. And again, I'm not talking about some, some fake triumphalistic mentality. I'm talking about everyday, real-life obedience by faith that glorifies God and using the gifts that he's given to you that actually bring you joy in using them and doing them. Paul has this obligation, and so he has an eagerness. He's like, I know what my office is, I know what my job is, and I want to do it, and I want to do it well, and I want to do it for God's glory, and I want to do it to encourage and bless other people. That should be the mentality of every Christian. And so he says, I want to preach the gospel to all you who are in Rome, knowing that not all of Rome had been converted, but the gospel is obviously something that converts the non-believer, but he wants to preach the gospel to you also. I'm, when he says to you, he's talking to the church as well. Why would he want to preach the gospel to the church? They're already Christians. Well, the gospel is not only God's tool for saving the unbeliever, but God's gospel is the tool for refreshing and encouraging the believer as well. How often do you think about the incredible riches and display of God's grace upon you in Christ in the gospel? I mean, I, we, we, you know, in, in our preparation to take communion together here in a few moments, I mean, that's why we do communion every week. This is a remembrance of the gospel, of what Christ has done. We, we try as a church to, to facilitate this <laughs> to, the, to the best that we can. We talk about the gospel in, in every single sermon we talk about the gospel every week when we come to the table. Even in going through the Psalms on Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're preaching the gospel because it's every way, everywhere, all, all the scriptures point to him. Why? Because, because it's the means of saving the, uh, the unsaved. God's gospel is the means of saving the unsaved. And that's people that could be sitting here today. I mean, people that you work with, people that you live with. But the gospel is also God's means of refreshing and, and encouraging the believer. As you look to him and... and Sometimes as your day is, you're so weighed down by all the ways that you have failed, right? That today, this New Year's Day, oh, I got these resolutions. I'm never going to do this again. I'm only going to do this. I'm going to be like this type of person. Like, you know you're going to fail, right? Like, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm the rain cloud. But, like, <laughs> failure is in the future, <laughs> 
But, the God, but God is still good, and the gospel is still true every day, every moment. And that's why we look to him, because he provides us with the incredible riches and goodness in Christ. Like, he didn't save you because he's good. He doesn't keep you because, he doesn't save you because you're good, and he doesn't keep you because you're good. He saved you because he's good, and he keeps you because he's good. And so we look to the table now. We take communion every week. And this is for believers. If you are, if you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, this faith we've been talking about, partake, celebrate, eat the meal with everyone else. This is a time of celebration and worship. This is a love feast with one another. Yeah, I know it's a little cup of juice and a cracker. It may not look much like a feast, but it's representative of the larger feast around the table of the king that we will partake of when we go to be with him. So, so partake of it with joy, partake of it with gratitude, partake of it with hope and contentment, partake of it with sobriety, partake of it with, with faith, with humility, as you look to him.